Welcome to the new and improved Beyond the Bubble podcast. We're relaunching today as we unveil our insightful and exclusive and always local plan for the 2020 election year. It's called Impact 2020. And along with this podcast and a slew of great reporting from the trail, it includes a newsletter that will bring you the strongest reporting from the best reporters on the ground. No national reporting in here, just the best stuff from the best reporters who live and work where this election will be decided. I'm Kristen Roberts, Vice President of News at McClatchy, and today I am joined by my forever co-host, political correspondent Alex Rorty. It is a pleasure to be back in the saddle. Indeed. And politics editor Adam Wallner. It's great to be in the studio with you guys. On I wish the feeling were mutual, Adam. Oh, ouch. Off to <laughs> a good... so mean. Off to so a really mean strong one start. <laughs> All, right. All right. On deck today, is Joe Biden even a front runner anymore? And you can all blame Alex Rorty for that silly topic. I'd say, all right, I welcome your hatred. And whether lower polling rivals have enough time to make up ground before voting starts in February. But first, I really think we need to skip ahead to the general because really now, isn't that what the Democratic primary ultimately is about anyway? So we are now officially one year out from the general election. Trump has been raising loads of cash, loads of cash. Where does he stand now, Alex? And is he in a position to potentially expand on the 306 electoral votes he won in 2016? Uh, he is not in a position to do that. He is in uh, what can be described as a relatively weak position for an incumbent president seeking re-election. His approval ratings from almost the beginning of his uh, tenure in office have been low. They have uh, stayed low. Um, and look, he is at best a 50-50 shot to win re-election. All of that said, all of that said, the idea that just because he is not in a position to expand uh, in the, his electoral map does not mean that he is not a formidable opponent. And I want to make that abundantly clear, um, particularly for someone who, believe it or not, I don't know if you guys remember, has defied electoral predictions from someone like me in the past. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, you, you weren't my boss then. I'm you know, you know, always <laughs> your boss. Don't make that mistake. <laughs> you were paying close attention to what I was writing. Um, you know, look, he, he does have a lot of advantages, a lot of advantages that um, a lot of incumbent presidents have. Particularly for this president, he has an incredibly energized and devoted and loyal following that, by the way, happens to be very well represented in the states that we're going to talk about over and over and over again the next year, like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think it's actually going to be a pretty small map uh, when it comes down to I it next November. And, and it's honestly, that. it's looked that way really ever since the midterms. I mean, we've been talking about this ever since that really the core of the fight looks like, you know, three of those Midwestern states that Trump was able to take from uh, the Democrats in 2016, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and then, of course, the perennial swing state of Florida. Um, if you look at where Trump and the RNC are already directing a lot of their resources, where Democratic groups uh, like the DNC, Priorities USA, the main Democratic super PAC, where they're already starting to spend their resources, those are really the four that are, are getting the, the bulk of the focus. And I think that's going to uh, remain that way 
uh, until next November because one, I mean, the margins were just so slim there for Trump. I think, you know, Democrats are looking at a couple of different ways they can win there, whether or not it's winning over some rural voters, uh, whether or not it's driving up turnout among uh, non-white voters and young voters in, in the cities. Um, I think that's definitely going to be where we see, you know, no matter who the Democratic nominee is, that's going to have to be sort of uh, priority number one before they start looking at, at other states on the map, even including, you know, some of your more traditional swing states, you know, Ohio, Iowa, Nevada, North Carolina. I mean, people were, I, I, I am guessing that Arizona is going to have a moment mm-hmm. um, in this election. That is a state that is, has moved to the left and is far more likely to be competitive in a general election than Texas, which I'm sure you're going to hear right. a lot of hype about. And look, there is something happening in Texas that's no longer a long-term possibility, but a medium-term possibility. But I don't it's know that it's a 12-month But it's not a 12-month possibility, exactly. I honestly, when I think about this, I can conceive of, of a scenario where it's September and like Wisconsin's the only state that matters. That everything is being poured into the, the dairy state, that that is going to either decide whether or not Trump wins re-election. He's like giddy over and, well, there. Well, in a lot of ways, Wisconsin is the only it. state that matters. <laughs> Politically, you know, you, could, you can just run through the, the list. The Adam Walner, for those uh, who do not know, listening at home, from the state of Wisconsin. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Yeah, have you guys heard that? Have I told you that before? I think Everybody I think you've mentioned it once, twice, or a thousand, <laughs> a thousand times. But here, here, here's the thing, though. Before we dive into this, Kristen, I want to hear from you, though, because I just I just detect a slight disagreement here with the analysis that Trump, um, you know, is is his back is up against the wall of the reelection. I don't think it is. Okay, explain. I don't think it is. You know, I, I and that's not because he's an incumbent. It's because people like him. People like Donald Trump. And you have to register that reality, right? Walk outside of Washington, D.C., get outside of New York City, get outside of L.A. People like Donald Trump. They might not like the things he's saying. You know, Dave has a great story that's publishing about the the undereducated white uh, woman as a voter group and how much Donald Trump has essentially... um, alienated that group of voters with with his behavior and his rhetoric. And yet, right, and yet the man is popular when you have one-on-one conversations. I'm not, and we can talk all day, and we will. We'll talk this entire podcast over the course of 12 months about polling, right? Polling that you know, I think, always sucks. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna interject, Kristen. Remind us, what do you, what do you think about polls? Exactly, right. And we can talk about that. But the more important thing to remember is that when you have one-on-one, face-to-face conversations with people outside of this city, in particular, Washington D.C., you get a completely different feeling about Donald Trump's strength, right? And if you look in Florida, which is where I live now. You look in Florida, he's doing smart things. And that's the other thing I want everybody to remember. The man has a great political gut. He, uh, he, he has great instincts. He's shown that over and over and over again, right? He did it in 2016, and he's done it since. And in Florida, just look, every couple of weeks, he's got something to say about Cuba. It's a smart play for South Florida. I wouldn't be surprised if every couple of weeks he's going to start saying something about Puerto Rico. It's a great play for Central Florida. He knows what he's doing and he knows where he needs to win. So the idea that his back is up against a wall because of what? Some impeachment proceeding in Washington, D.C.? I just think it's nonsense. Well, you know, one thing I will readily agree with is that it appears he is building a pretty formidable reelection campaign. Um, full of volunteers, certainly full of money. I mean, he's raising an ungodly amount of money 
at this point. And I know even Democrats I talk to who are already focused on the general election, who are watching the reelection campaign closely, who say they're actually impressed. I mean, they're horrified, but they're impressed at, at what the, the Trump campaign is building. And you have to look, there, there is going to be a scenario next year where just like there, it's the case every time there is an incumbent president running for re-election, they are able to spend years building this war machine, as it were, to prepare for the election. And meanwhile, the other party's nominee emerges from a difficult primary in April or May or who knows when, and they don't have any money. They're not ready for the general election, and they're just going to get pummeled. It happened to Mitt Romney uh, in mm-hmm. 2012. I think in some ways that the, the operation that the Obama folks and Obama's allies ran in 12 serves as a template for the Trump campaign. And I've had Democrats speculate to me that, you know, whenever the Democratic nominee emerges, say it's April, just hypothetically, that the Trump reelection campaign could spend $100 million in digital and TV ads right out of the gate trying to define them before they have the resources to respond. And, and I think it's, it's absolutely a huge advantage. By the way, it's why we usually – it's one of the reasons we see incumbent presidents usually win reelection. Right. And, and if you look at the approval rating in these various battleground states, you know, right now, nationally, he's you know, usually in about the low 40s. And if you just kind of take that on its own, you'd say that's not a good place to be if you're an incumbent president. Uh, he is running a little bit ahead of that in some of these swing states, um, you know, in Wisconsin, uh, for instance. I know there was a Marquette poll that came out recently that showed him at about 46 percent. So, you know, not great, but certainly, you know, that already that puts him in a much stronger position uh, to win to win a state like that. And that's pretty consistent across a lot of those other battleground states that, that we mentioned. And one thing I'm curious about uh, to hear from you guys is so, you know, we talked about how, OK, so we kind of have an idea of what the sort of top tier battleground states are going to be. We mentioned a couple states where Democrats may try and reach into Arizona, Texas, Georgia. I mean, realistically, what are the states that Trump can look to and say, Hillary Clinton won these in 2016, but I could potentially bring into uh, the Republican column? I got to say, I don't think there are any. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I go back to my original answer. You know, they had floated you the- You are staking out a position I, I know, here. You do I know, realize I mean, what and, yeah, you're and doing I think, right I think now. you're probably- Famous, famous last word. Probably wow. right. But, you know, don't forget, I mean, so New Hampshire- Kind of like a well, an overlooked okay. battleground right, state. Not many electoral votes, but that's always really close. You can see him winning yeah. that. That that's that's fair. I mean, New, New Hampshire and and look, I, I say that in response mostly because there was a yeah. story a couple months ago they floated New Mexico uh, as an right. idea or and, Oregon and, or gonna, Oregon right. and, and, and no. And in fact, I was talking with a Republican recently who was laughing about that. I think the more serious ones, New Hampshire, yes. Um, New Hampshire is always going to be a state. Minnesota is the one that's going to get a lot of attention. Right. It's next door to Wisconsin. It got lost in the flurry of everything that happened in 2016. Trump only lost it by a point or like so. A point and a half, I think. About yeah. a point and a half. Um, you know, look, the, the the truth is if, you know, if Donald Trump is winning Minnesota, you know, if we don't know where Minnesota is going the day before the election, the truth is Donald Trump is probably going to win this mm-hmm. election. It might not well, even be all that close. The truth is it depends completely, completely on who the Democratic nominee is. This sounds like a segue. It this, is a this segue. Sounds like, this sounds like a segue. <laughs> it is a segue. So let's who is talk, that nominee going to be? Let's talk about it. Who is Trump going to face in the general? And Joe Biden has been considered the leading contender ever since he entered the race. We all know that the polling and the fundraising numbers are slipping, or at least have slipped. Let me change the tense of that verb. Is Biden, Adam, still the front runner? Um, I would I would say he is not the one single front runner. You know, now if we want to oh, get into it into God. a semantic argument, I think we can call him a, a co-front runner, okay. but he okay. certainly is not the front runner anymore. And that's significant. I mean, this is the former vice president of the United States 
who, you know, from from the beginning of, of this campaign has been seen as the most electable Democrat um, and has really, you know, in, in the national polls and in the early state polls really established an early advantage. His early fundraising numbers looked good, but um, things have certainly turned for him recently, still leading in most national polls, but now he's down in Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, his fundraising numbers, I mean, were, were really shocking. I mean, the end of the third quarter, he had less than $9 million cash on hand. I mean, that is in, you know, that, that is an incredibly weak position for a, a so-called front runner. Um, you know, I think right now, if we were to kind of put the candidates in tiers, you know, he's, you know, you got Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and maybe even a step below Pete Buttigieg. I mean, right now, you know, you could maybe make the argument that it's, you know, Biden and Warren as sort of the, the co-front runners. Uh, but he's certainly not not alone at, at the top of the field yeah, anymore. The, the cash, the cash thing is the huge red flag in all of this, because you need to have the resources to compete. And for someone like Joe Biden, I mean, his whole path has always been, look, I can do well in Iowa and I can do well in New Hampshire, but you know what, when it comes down to it, I'm going to, I'm going to kick people's butts in South Carolina. That is where, uh, the state, the earliest state with the highest concentration of African-American voters, those are the voters I do best. The, the problem is if you don't have the resources to carry you through, or even the resources to really make a heavy play in Iowa and New Hampshire, not to win those states at this point, but just to stay competitive. I mean, can you imagine, just to take a step back, if Joe Biden finished in fourth in Iowa? Right. Do you think his presidential campaign is going to be in great shape after that heading into New Hampshire? I, I think there are some, some obviously some, some real doubts about that. And, you know, Adam, you referenced it. There was a New York Times-Siena poll that came out uh, just recently that had Joe Biden in, in fourth place in Iowa. He had slipped behind Pete Buttigieg. And I think that's another big area of concern for Joe Biden right now is that apparently Buttigieg is not content to just line align himself to be the HUD secretary, right? Honestly, and all props to you on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Who noticed Mayor Pete was for real? Like you did, Alex. And I, I remember when you walked into my office and picked, <laughs> pitched this story, I'm like, wait, who and why are you spending valuable time on this? But man, were yeah, you I right? was I, I was surprised Kristen approved that one. Were you we right were all surprised what? Kristen approved approved that. I just wanted to talk to him about what music he listened to in high school. But <laughs> um, but no, he's you know, in the in the last debate he went from a candidate who had had like a nice moment, but you weren't sure it was going to go any further than that. So really mixing it up with Elizabeth Warren, really mixing it up with other candidates on stage. And you got to say, I mean, just objectively, you know, when he critiqued Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for all plan, right? This is something that Joe Biden has been trying to do for several debates. Joe Biden was never as successful as Pete Buttigieg was. And you see some of that Elizabeth Warren just recently right. now releasing how she is going to pay for her Medicare for yeah. all plan. It did break through. And and the problem for Biden is there is now another candidate who is preaching a more moderate message um, out, out there um, who might be taking away voters from him, not, not African-American voters who, again, are Joe Biden's base. So he still has that. Um, but in terms of people who, who are a little wary of, of people who are too progressive or don't agree with those ideas, like a single-payer health care system, he has a real rival now. And I think that could be a real problem for him. All the way up until the moment I was sitting in the airport this morning, I thought, this is still Joe Biden's to lose, right? But as I started reading the Warren Medicare for All plan and realizing um, – that she was not just serious, but also detail-oriented and was hitting, it was hitting tones that were going to resonate with people who would consider themselves in the Democratic Party to be centrists, I began to see a path for her that I had not seen before. You know, I mean, she's out there talking about 
competition among healthcare providers as being good for consumers. There are a lot of notes in that announcement about Medicare for All, how it's going to be paid for, that that help her with what she frankly has a narrative problem. She's got a narrative problem with a population of people who are not activists and not millennials, right? When you talk to Democratic primary voters in swing states, in in a place like North Carolina, in a place like uh, Pennsylvania, Democrats in a place like Florida, the idea of Elizabeth Warren feels a little bit too much like the idea of Bernie Sanders. This kind of plan actually can help her shed that and can allow her to put some distance and sunlight between Bernie and herself. Right. It's interesting how she's been able to sort of create this lane for herself between Biden and Sanders. I mean, Sanders, I think, being in this race has actually really helped her because otherwise she would be the one that's always being portrayed as way too far to the left. She's, you know, the liberal progressive that's way out there. But even, you know, and we talked about this, Alex, a lot as, as we've been watching these primary debates is that especially in those early few, you know, when it was the moderates attacking the progressives, it was usually Bernie Sanders who was taking the, the, the brunt of those Tax. I think that really hurt him where Elizabeth Warren was just sort of able to hide behind him and say, OK, I'll let Bernie go defend Medicare for all and all these other kind of, you know, overarching progressive plans. Now, of course, Warren is starting to take more of that that fire as she's risen up in the polls. But I think as Christian just alluded to, I think she has done still a pretty good job of, of finding her spot in the primary, which is more than we can say for a lot of the other Democrats running. You know, we, you know, we knew Biden was going to be in sort of that center left establishment lane. We knew Bernie Sanders were gonna, was going to have that progressive lane. So it's kind of incumbent upon though the those new candidates who hadn't run for president before to, to find their spot in the primary. And to Warren's credit, he's done that. But it's super dumb to think that Biden's out. You don't oh, think oh, Biden's out. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. That's no, why one's... I said he's the co-front runner still. <laughs> but here's here's what I'll here's what I'll say for Biden. So I, I think, was very careful. I think his very careful. I think so. Two of his biggest strengths right now don't necessarily aren't working with the way the primary has sort of played out so far. So one of his biggest strengths is that he has been consistently viewed as the most electable Democrat, the the one that's the yep. most likely to beat Trump. But there are some signs that's starting that's starting to fade away a little bit. And again, just one poll. But I was really struck by that New York Times Siena poll that Alex referenced earlier. Elizabeth Warren was seen at um, as like or I, I'm trying to remember now how it was worded. Basically, Iowa Democrats were as confident that Elizabeth Warren could beat Trump as Joe Biden. So that that really stuck out to me. I hadn't seen a poll like that in quite some time. And I mean, as we outlined from the very beginning of this campaign, that was one of Elizabeth Warren's biggest hurdles. Can she beat Trump? Biden's second big strength uh, is his support with black voters. He still is the overwhelming favorite with that constituency. The problem is they don't really play a major role until the fourth contest. Iowa, New Hampshire, the first two states to vote, predominantly white. And you see him falling behind in the polls there. Nevada's third, the Latino vote there, obviously an an important uh, role to play. But by the time you get to South Carolina, if Biden you know, ha- hasn't had a major vic- victory yet, are black voters still going to stick with him? Yeah, no. I've seen that movie before. That South Carolina <laughs> is my strategy movie. Yeah, exactly. I've seen let that. Me, it sucks. Let me, let me just say, in, I guess in, in defense of Joe Biden, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, in his possibility of still winning this primary, like he has taken incoming for as long as he's been a candidate. People have been going after him um, on any number of issues. His past record, of course, his record is so long. He's been in public office for so long. There are any number of things that people 
took out of that, criticized, made an issue, um, in large part because a lot of stuff that he has done or said or supported in the past is no longer in step with a rapidly changing Democratic Party. All that said, he's still in this race and he has taken probably, as, again, as much criticism as all of the other frontrunners combined. The question now is, we mentioned Warren and she has had, I mean, let's just say flat out, she has been by far the most successful candidate of this Democratic primary today. No doubt. It's mm-hmm. not even, it's not even close. She was in the mid-single It's digits. surprising. It is surprising. But I know, you're so right. It, it is it is surprising. She has almost, you know, say tripled her support nationally from where she was at in the early spring. All of that said, a candidate like this, when, when a rise happens, there's a lot of positive press. There's a lot of good feelings, people getting excited. At some moment that turns and when you become the front runner and all of a sudden the scrutiny shifts and, it, and it's placed on your shoulders. And we have seen that moment, I think, mm-hmm. with Elizabeth Warren in the last debate. Now, if you look at the polls from that debate, she still did exceptionally well, according to Democratic uh, voters. But the question is, is she going to continue to grow, particularly for a candidate to say like where her support is? It's college educated Democrats. Right. I mean, she does pretty well, say, with non-college white voters, too. Mm-hmm. But she is oh, yeah. college educated white voters in particular, but also college educated African-American voters, too. That's where her base is. The question is whether she can, can continue to grow now that there are these sort of renewed questions about her. So let me quote something from a WhatsApp group of <laughs> former Florida Republican operatives who are now business owners on Elizabeth Warren. She puts us all out of business. She is horrible for Florida, right? That is the message against Elizabeth Warren with every Democrat who is not of the group you just mentioned, right? Every Democrat mm-hmm. in a state where the, the where the center left is not ascending. That's the message about Elizabeth Warren. I would, I would just say as a, as a quick addendum, you will be surprised the number of Republicans I have spoken to privately who think she is the biggest threat to Donald Trump. I think you Donald know, Trump thinks that too. I, it is. I, I it, like I've, Even when I was in Wisconsin just recently talking with the Republicans there and I had someone actually tell me that when this race thought, started, they thought Elizabeth Warren was make a, Donald Trump's reelection a cinch. They've now shifted after seeing her and the fact that she's actually really good at campaigning and seeing her, they now consider her the top threat. That is not actually that unique of you within the GOP, believe it or not. We need to get Fran Chambers on the show so that she can talk precisely about what Donald Trump thinks of the field. Let's talk about people other than Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, please. We've mm-hmm. got recent polls and fundraising totals showing a pretty fairly consistent top four in the primary race. Beyond Biden and Warren, we have Sanders and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. But there are probably a dozen left, a dozen other Democratic candidates in the single digits. Can they leave now? (laughs) Can they leave Yeah, history says it's going to be a a pretty uh, tough road for them between now and Iowa. Obviously, we have some some, uh, famous examples that – candidates, you know, who are struggling at this, you know, in October, November of, of the off year that they like to point to, John McCain in 2008, John Kerry in 2004. But those are really more the exceptions than the rule. I mean, really, if you're not, you know, not saying that you have to be leading the polls at this point, but you have to be relevant. You have to be in the top tier, I think, at this point to really have a shot in Iowa. And and at this point, I would be very surprised if anybody outside of those four candidates, just Kristen just mentioned, won Iowa. Now, that's not to say it can't happen. And so if we're trying to look at, OK, who in this field can at least make some noise? I'm not I'm not saying that they're going to win Iowa. Maybe they sneak up somewhere into the top three. I know one candidate um, that we've been focused on a lot in Iowa has been Amy Klobuchar. 
senator from the neighboring state of Minnesota, has spent a lot of time there, has a lot of goodwill there. But again, you know, you only see her at, you know, I think she topped out at 4% in, in the most recent poll today. Um, Buttigieg's rise is not great for her. Buttigieg, right. Really, and and, really and I, you're, I should say, f- you know, the other thing for any of these other, you know, dozen candidates who are still running for president, for them to rise up in the polls, that means somebody from this top four would have to fall out and have, you know, some sort of, you know, you know, mistake or just, you know, whatever it is that would cause them to fall. Let's pause to, to for a moment and recognize that Andrew Yang raised more than Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar. Yes. I mean, seriously, time to exit. Combined? Not combined. Is it combined? No, okay. no, yeah. combined. Um, well, and Booker and Booker is, I think, another candidate to at least have a moment in Iowa, um, because while he hasn't, you know, really cracked, <laughs> I don't think above two or three percent in the polls in Iowa, he does have a really good staff and organization on the ground. You know, you talk to any any Democrats in Iowa around the country, they'll say that, and they've been there early. He also still has the most endorsements in Iowa Isn't of that any amazing? candidate, and I think maybe that speaks more to the fact that. You know, if you know, if we're thinking about the old school rules of politics, yeah. we'd say this guy should be the front runner. But as as we've learned in recent cycles, endorsements and and staff doesn't matter as much in sort of this nationalized environment. Um, but people do like Cory Booker. His favorables are really good. The problem is he's just nobody's top choice, second choice, third choice at this point. But again, if someone you know out of that top four falls, maybe all of a sudden they they looked at to Cory Booker. I feel I, that I, way about you, Adam. <laughs> what? I was really like you, but I was not the top choice for it's this podcast. It's not good enough. I was not the know. top choice for this podcast. He's always <laughs> looking for other people to buy the beer. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I might move on. I'm going to move on and talk about Kamala Harris because, oh, I mean, really, yeah. why? She, there was so much there. Why, why, is she do, why has she done so poorly? I mean, I think she just sort of has been a candidate without a home, without a base this whole race, right? I mean, you know, from the start of the campaign, and it wasn't just Senator Harris, it's a lot of her other um, fellow colleagues in the Senate, I think started by racing to the left, even in, in 2018 when Bernie Sanders had his Medicare for All bill. You know, all of those, or, or almost all of those prominent senators running for president signed on to that. They were talking about a federal jobs guarantee. They were talking about a $15 minimum wage. I mean, when's the last time you heard Senator Harris or any of these candidates really talk about that? So I think she sort of miscalculated early on that it was just going to be a race to the left in the primary. But she quickly learned that, one, it's really tough to outflank a Democratic socialist in Bernie Sanders. And two, you had somebody in Elizabeth Warren who, even though she hasn't run for president before, she still has a lot of you know credibility in that lane. So then I think you know she tried to go more towards the center. She attacked Joe Biden in that Miami debate. And that was that was the best moment of her campaign. Um, th- those those days following that. But she just but she didn't you know, she never followed through with that. She didn't continue to, to attack Biden after that. And she just it seems like, you know, every week she's trying to roll out a, a different message or a different strategy. And I think it just ultimately comes down to she she just never had sort of a, a core base that she was targeting. I, I, there's an interesting story about how many of the top tier perceived top tier Democratic candidates started out this race. And I even go back to, say, 2017 and 2018 mm-hmm. when they were clearly preparing to run for president, like Cory Booker, like Kamala Harris, like Kristen Gillibrand, and how far to the left they moved on any number of issues. I wrote a story, I think it was in 2018, about how candidate, all three of those candidates supported a federal jobs guarantee, which, by the way, is not something we've even discussed um, in this Democratic primary, but it was a really far-reaching proposal, but literally just to make sure that anyone who wanted a job could get a job in part provided by the federal government. It's pretty radical stuff. And you've seen all of these candidates uh, particularly to try to recalibrate. Cory Booker, actually, to his credit, 
maybe did this very early on in his campaign, realized that he wasn't going to be able to compete against Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren on the left, that he needed to start talking about we can't you know, sac- sacrifice good in the name of perfect um, to try to deliver real change for people. Kamala Harris, this process was elongated over the course of several months. Um, it happened much later than Cory Booker's. Um, and, and you just wonder, what was the thinking that, you know, that made her, what was the thinking that her team had and said, oh, you know what, she can compete with Elizabeth Warren. She can compete with Bernie Sanders. She can appeal to a lot of their voters by being far left. When her, her record as a prosecutor um, simply didn't match it. And, and it, I got to say, like, this doesn't seem her own worldview. You know, she is a mainstream Democrat in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that she was a conservative prosecutor, but any prosecutor, say like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia right now, is going to struggle, uh, is going to have things in their record that progressives are going to to criticize. Um, and it, all this said, the, go back to the moment where she broke through, right? Um, it, was at, it was in uh, Miami. It was the first debate. And she criticized Joe Biden for his position on busing. And we saw for about a month, she rose to the top of the Democratic primary, and in the estimation of a lot of people, myself included, thought maybe she was the front runner in this thing. Why did that work? Well, to me, it was the one moment in this campaign that seemed to intersect with who she actually is. She had benefited as a little girl from busing, right? She even, they, they, their campaign, I believe, had tweeted out pictures of her um, as a girl. She had a personal story to tell. And it was the one moment where you could believe this is who Kamala Harris is. This is who she is. This is her authentic self. This is what she believes in. And no kidding, you know, she soared. She got as far as, as, far as 25% in some polls. That has been missing, I feel like, from the rest of her campaign. Um, and it's why she's struggling. And you see her debates now, and it's almost as if the campaign is resolved not to try to answer that question mm-hmm. about who she is politically and how she fits in in the modern Democratic Party. They're just content to take some shots at Donald Trump and mention Planned Parenthood. And, and that's about it. There's no, there's no consensus view of, of who she is. They're not even trying anymore. Right. It's one of the few moments, I think, of this campaign where she was the one forcing the issue, right? That wasn't a question in that Miami debate that was asked by the moderator. She was the one that brought it up and turned to Joe Biden. I feel like more often than not, she's either just sort of reacting to whatever, you know, her her team sort of feels like the, the wind happens to be blowing that week. Um, or just or not trying to cause any stir whatsoever and just sort of, you know, you know, stay stay um, above the fray. Now, again, in the spirit of not writing anyone off because we're not going to be that that dumb about this. But one thing I will say, and this applies, I think, to Cory Booker, too. And I've seen some buzz about this, at least online. You know, look, the the moderates in the party, particularly the people with a lot of money, you know, are, are they concerned about Joe Biden right now? Probably. Are they concerned that maybe Pete Buttigieg isn't the right person? To, to carry on because, oh, by the way, he's a 37-year-old mayor of a small town in Indiana? Probably. There is a possibility that the moderates, both the voters and the donor class, start looking for someone else. And I mm-hmm. think at some point, are they going to consider Kamala Harris or Cory Booker? Because here's the other thing, Kristen, this is a favorite topic of yours. All four of the front-running Democratic candidates right now, what trait do they all share? They're white. Mm-hmm. They're all white. And, and meanwhile, Kamala Harris, who has backed off Medicare for all, Cory Booker, again, who backed off it a long time ago, Cory Booker in particular, he could be a moderate candidate. And there's a pretty decent case that he's a strong general election candidate, too, by the way. He's still a vegan, though. Well, I know. We're gonna, we're <laughs> That's gonna... been his problem in Iowa. He goes to the state fair and can't eat <laughs> All he can the have is there. the uh, fried butter. Yeah. Kristen and I have been talking about this topic for two years, if you're wondering at home about the, the ve- <laughs> Cory Booker's veganism. But there's a strong case. Look, he is, he is uh, right age. Um, he was a mayor and a senator. 
Um, he, he holds relatively mainstream positions in the Democratic Party. He, he could be, and I've seen some buzz about that. Look, I think it's a long shot, but it's something to keep in mind uh, as we move forward. And, and I think, and just one other thought on this, I think one other uh, pro- problem a lot of these lower polling candidates is gonna ha- are, are going to have is that everybody, I mean, and I mean everybody, is going all in on Iowa right now. Just makes it that much more difficult to break through. You know, in past primaries, you know, you'd have candidates that were a little more focused on Iowa, a little more focused on New Hampshire, you know, and even Nevada, South Carolina down the road. But I mean, really, everybody is going all in on Iowa right now. And that just makes it, you know, and, and when there's still 16 people running, even if they're only polling a handful of votes, right, it just makes it that much tougher to get into that top three. And, you know, that's the, the as the saying goes in Iowa, you need there, there's three tickets out of that state. Why, well, Adam, as you know, in Iowa, they want to see you. They, they do. They want to see you. Hmm, I've heard that before. It's one, it's one of those old saws that really doesn't make any sense in modern politics. But I do love the other one that is, I think, going to be disproven. Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents. You can guess which mm. state likes to talk about that. Not looking so hot right now. McClatchy's Washington Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com slash newsletter. All right, we're shifting gears and we're getting to my very favorite part of every podcast. And that's where you need to empty your notebooks and tell me something I don't know. And the first person this week is going to be Alex Rorty. Now, I don't want to brag, but just minutes, just (laughs) minutes, mere minutes, mere minutes before we (laughs) sat down to record this podcast, picked up the phone and called uh, Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin. I thought uh, you were going to say Scott Bland. Scott, <laughs> it was Scott Bland imitating that would have been Scott Walker. Just yeah. kidding. Just kidding, Scott. Just kidding, Scott. Um, well, uh, interesting. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, Kristen. I asked Scott Walker, who, which Democratic presidential candidate do you think would be the most formidable in Wisconsin? Who do you think he said would be the most formidable candidate? She's really like contemplating this. I really am. She is. She is right, she's really like, really wait, is, is it the obvious answer? Is mm. it some? Why is he Alex asking, is trying to trick me? He said Elizabeth Warren. He said Bernie Sanders. No! <laughs> he said Bernie Sanders. He called Joe Biden Hillary 2.0. Uh, he which said, is saying a lot from a guy say, like Scott Walker. Right. Well, and, and he, he I naturally asked him, okay, Governor, explain that to me. And he said, um, you know, particularly, we were talking about rural voters um, in particular. And he said, you know, look, for them, a lot of the policies don't matter as much. It's just a gut check. What they want to know is basically, with, are you authentic? Are you with the establishment Ugh, or not with the word. establishment? Authentic, I know. It's, it's, it's overused, but there is some merit to it because I'm pretty sure, you know, with Bernie Sanders, I think we all believe what you see is what you get um, up there and that he's pretty much the same in all uh, scenes and with all kinds of different people um, and, and that he's being, you know, he's being himself um, and he's not the classic Democratic establishment candidate. I think we can all say what you will about Bernie Sanders' candidacy, and there's a lot to say. We didn't actually say much on this podcast about it. We'll address that next week. But, um, you know, he is not a member of the Democratic establishment. He's in, and, Or hardly the party. Or hardly the party. And, and look, it, it, again, what Scott Walker would say is people who, you know, for rural America, if they see you as part of the establishment, that is uh, the same as saying that you care about suburbs and cities an awful lot and you don't care about people like me. And that's why I think uh, Bernie Sanders would be the strongest out there. I thought that was a surprising answer, a very interesting answer, and something to think about. So uh, 
Now, are we sure Scott Walker, pretty savvy political operator, are we sure he's not just talking up the Democratic Socialists in the field because he actually thinks that's who he actually wants uh, Trump to face? Are you suggesting a politician would lie to me? (laughs) No, I'm just saying, you know. I call a halt to this banter. It's your turn, Adam. All right. Um, well, I so in that spirit, I'm also going to ask a question to Kristen. Oh, come so, on. No, you don't. It's you don't. your. This we're is really, your. your really tell me you something I don't know, and I, you're going to ask me a question. Well, yeah. I'm, so I'm saying, how right, many? Go. Go, right, go. How many TV ads do you think Elizabeth Warren has run so far in this twenty in this 2020 right. primary? It's like stump the chump around <laughs> here. <laughs> I'm not trying to stump you. I was, was going to say he can't ask me because yeah. he talked yeah, about I this did, with yeah. me before. Okay, just yeah. give us the answer. So she has run exactly one TV ad so far in this campaign. Uh, and it came during the Iowa State-Oklahoma football game uh, Saturday, October 26th on Fox Sports Run on Fox Sports 1. It ran exactly once. She paid $27,000 to do it. Uh, I think it's pretty notable that she has risen to the top of the primary field without having run any TV ads. You look at most of the other top-tier candidates in the race, they've, they've been you know on and off the air o- over the past few months. But she has been running a lot of digital ads. She's one of the top uh, Democratic spenders on Facebook. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, I feel like every cycle we talk about is this, you know, is this going to be the cycle where, you know, digital ads finally become more important than TV ads? You know, I'm not, you know, not quite ready to go that far, but I think at least in the primary, it's been pretty clear that the people um, who are spending on digital ads are, are more likely to break through and, you know, having a bigger impact than those who are just going up on TV. I did not know that. So well done. Well done. We're going to do something new on this podcast uh, that we did not do on the last iteration of Beyond the Bubble. We are going to give our listeners every week one local political reporter, repeat, local political reporter to follow over the course of the 2020 cycle in the states that happen to matter at that point in the calendar, if if you'd like, or someone who you think our listeners should just be following over the course of the entire cycle. So what do you got? Well, I think um, as you guys may have uh, mentioned, I'm from the state of Wisconsin, so oh, I'm going to I'm going to mention oh, uh, the, wow. the top political reporter for my um, former hometown paper, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Craig Gilbert uh, has been covering politics there for decades. Um, if you want to know how Wisconsin's going to vote in 2020, you know the way the win- the winds are shifting there, you need to follow him. He is at Wis Voter on Twitter. I have to back Adam up on that. Craig Gilbert is a fantastic reporter. Uh, mine is Laura Olson. She is a reporter for the Allentown Morning Call. Full disclosure, she is a very good friend of mine, but she's been covering Pennsylvania politics uh, for a decade now. Really, you would struggle to find a better expert on what happens in all of the many regions in that very diverse, important state for 2020. Laura Olson of the Morning Call. That's my reporter. I'm going with the Charlotte Observer's very own Jim Morrill. He is going to be telling a very key story. It's about whether North Carolina is a swing state. Is North Carolina the new Florida? He's also the man with all the info on the Republican convention that's coming to Charlotte. He on Twitter is at Jim Morrill. And it's pronounced Morrill like not immoral, but moral. But it's M-O-R-R-I-L-L. A good, was, name, a good name for a reporter. He was actually a guest. It is a good name for a reporter. <laughs> he was a guest on an earlier iteration of this podcast. So the uh, the... the Beyond the Bubble devotees will remember, Jim. He is an excellent reporter. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Kristen. And Adam. Yes, thank you. Thank you to our silent producer, Jeremy Sheeler. Come on, say thank you. You're welcome. going to fit in great here. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners. Check us out wherever you get your favorite shows. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. <laughs> Just kidding. Talk to you next week.